You're listening to Vet Candy. But with this case, it was almost like there were extra intestines in there. And that's what I was like, ah, this is different. (laughs) This is different. Extra intestines are a red flag. At what point did you realize, I think we have a major problem here? Oh, when all the extra intestines, I knew immediately. Um, It's like, you know, that's not normal. This episode is brought to you by Credelio for Cats. Welcome to the Vet Mysteries Podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a board-certified veterinary surgeon and fiercely devoted to pet and animal health. This podcast is powered by Vet Candy, a multimedia platform offering diverse veterinary content produced by veterinary experts and key opinion leaders. In this podcast, we unravel some of the most baffling and fascinating cases in clinical veterinary medicine. Please let us know how you feel about these cases. You can find us on socials at Dr. Courtney DVM and at My Vet Candy. Now, let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a conversation. This is a mystery podcast that I've been honestly looking forward to all week long. We've got a tremendously illustrious guest with us. Uh, In full disclosure, I think the world of this doctor, and I'm so happy that she's joined us for this podcast. Today, we are joined by the wonderful and eminent Dr. Aziza Glass. Dr. Glass, welcome to the podcast. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Cordelio Cat Lotal Honor protects your cat from ticks and fleas, so you can be close. Cordelio Close, the first and only of its kind. It's a small, tasty chewable that's easy to give. Lotaloner is a member of the isoxazoline class of drugs. The most common side effects are weight loss, rapid breathing, and vomiting. This drug class has been associated with neurological adverse reactions. Use with caution on cats with a history of seizures. Keep your cat close. Credelio close. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, this is super exciting. I want to take a deep dive right away into this mystery case. And I'm kind of on pins and needles because I'm not exactly sure what you're going to share. This is a mystery to me, too. But before we do that, there are some things I really want to get out of the way. You have such a tremendously interesting story. Uh, I've been kind of fanning out on you for so long. Please let me know and the rest of the audience, let us know what it was like where you grew up. Oh, where I grew up. So I am from Houston, Texas, more particularly third ward area. So there's a lot of well-known, which is a historical Black area of Houston. That's where Felicia Rashad and Debbie Allen hail from, uh, Robert Glasper, Beyonce, uh, the rest of uh original Destiny's Child, <laughs> the original four. I don't know about the But yeah, so with Houston, I just grew up in a very uh, wonderful environment that did not give limitations to what we could do as individuals, especially because we knew people who were out and making tremendous thing happenings on a global scale. And my parents were one of those. They were like, what do you want to do? Go for it. And that was the case for me as well as all of my sisters. I'm My dad is a, is a literal girl dad, just like Kobe Bryant. Okay. <laughs> Four daughters, no sons. 
And all of us uh, ended up taking what both my dad and my mom instilled in us and applied it to our life, both personally and professionally. And we've been able to achieve a lot of the different goals that we've set for ourselves. That's really incredible. Just those this tremendous talent coming out of your area. I have definitely heard people in veterinary medicine describe you as the Beyonce of veterinary medicine. Why <laughs> veterinary medicine in general? Why did you select this profession? I think when I explain it, people may say that that's a little too simple or a little too, like, I don't know, maybe they think it's going to be this, like, huge convoluted thing, but it really isn't. So I actually didn't even consider veterinary medicine until what's considered late for most veterinarians. I didn't consider it until probably my sophomore year in college. Most veterinarians know that they want to be a vet when they're children, but that was not the case. I actually didn't even have pets growing up. And Black veterinarians are very rare. I I grew up in a um, Black area of Houston, so I never even met a vet. I knew that I liked animals. I loved learning about animals. I loved science. And so I ended up going to college. Um, even though I'm from the inner city, I ended up going to Prairie View A&M University as an agriculture major, concentrating in animal science because it was the next best thing I could get to zoology. And, uh, and I absolutely enjoyed it. It wasn't until that sophomore year that I realized that a couple of my professors who I called doctor were veterinarians. I just assumed that all of them had PhDs, but a couple of them were DBMs. And it was around the same time that the upperclassmen that I really respected and looked up to was preparing for graduation. They're preparing for what they wanted to do next. And I started to hear vet school. Now, I always knew what a veterinarian was. Um, But I just never considered it for myself. And it's one of those things of it's more difficult to be what you can't see. Right. And even though I knew the definition of veterinarian, I never saw it. So it just never dawned on me that that could be something that I could do. And I also knew this is a very important thing. I knew that once I graduated, I was going to go to some school so that I would graduate post-grad and become Dr. Glass. I knew I was going to get some type of doctorate. So when I realized, oh, if I'm a vet, I could be Dr. Glass too. Well, I guess I could try that. <laughs> so it, it just it just added to the list. So I actually applied to both a PhD programs that uh, I would focus on animal behavior and just you know further learning about animals, and as well as DVM programs. And I told myself. I was going to go to the first program that I heard back from. I didn't know that Cornell is notoriously (laughs) the first people to to let folks know. They let people know in like January. And so it's like, wow, I guess I'm going to Cornell vet school. So that's how I got that. (laughs) No, that's, that's absolutely incredible because we do talk a little bit about the fact that veterinary medicine is very unique in the sense that a lot of us are guided in this profession, in this allied health profession, by our first experience with animals or by our affection towards a particular species, whether it be dogs, cats, hamsters, etc. And as you were growing up, you didn't have contact with pets. Furthermore, you never saw veterinarians who actually looked like you. The combination of the two, I think it's a, a miracle and a testament to your stick-to-itiveness that you were able to achieve your dream. So it's just really uh, an honor to be able to talk to you right now, considering your story. Now, when you were growing up, veterinary medicine was kind of a mystery to you because you hadn't met a lot of veterinarians. 
do us a favor and tell us something semi-mysterious about Dr. Glass, something that people wouldn't readily know just by meeting you. A lot of people, especially because I am very straightforward when I'm in the clinic. And uh, for so most people that may know me from school or will know me from uh, work probably don't know that I'm a huge Trekkie, that uh, I love Star Trek. I love Star Wars. I'm huge into comics. I am. I always considered myself a closet geek. I'm more DC than Marvel, but I do recognize that Marvel is kicking it with the cinematic universe and I have to give respect where respect is due. DC is doing their thing in the TV space with CW. You know, it is what it is. They have their separate lanes. And that I really am into the arts. Uh, And I even went to a performing arts high school, which I think kind of prepared me for my career as it is now and what will continue to prepare me in the future. And that is why I am a huge proponent and advocate for STEAM, not just STEM, because I do think that, uh, that the arts plays a very big role in how we look at Um, a lot of different aspects of life, including science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I think that you have to be creative. You have to be able to uh, have an artistic mind in order to really be able to maximize each of those fields. Yeah, that's fantastic. You dropped so many mysterious gems. There's gems that I find rather illuminating, and that's the fact that you are a Trekkie, you love DC, and you are a fierce advocate for STEAM. Before we get started, we have to settle something uh, right off the bat. This is something that I'm I'm sure all listeners uh, to this podcast have been wanting to know since you started talking. Uh, Batman or Superman, who is your favorite? What? I mean, why would you put them together against each other? This might be the hardest question you'll receive this entire podcast. (laughs) Can I say neither? Yeah. So unfortunately, I'm just, hold on, let me check with the judges. No, actually, (laughs) nope. Sorry. That's not an answer. I apologize. You're going to have to give an answer on this. Okay. I, okay. If I have to do one or the other, I would do Batman because at the end of the day he does have um, he recognizes that with great power there's also um, the possibility that you can get turned and he will make a contingency plan in order to take you out if the time calls for it but the reason why I was not going to is because I also find extremely annoying that Batman has allowed himself to fool with the Joker for so long, like he could have been taking him out and he just won't. And I think it's because they have a codependency issue. That is d- taking a deep dive. I did not expect some <laughs> clinical psychoanalysis of Batman, but that was the best I've, I've heard in a long time. You mentioned contingency plan, and that is something I really want to talk to you about today. We're here to talk about a potential mystery uh, that you had in the, in, in the clinical environment that I tell you what, sometimes you just see the the weirdest, the wonderful, the most rare. And so let's get started. Let's talk about that uh, mystery that came into your practice. Do us a favor. Could you tell us the name and give us a signalman? Okay, so I'm going to make up the name. For purposes of anonymity, let's just keep the names and let's make up the names. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be Toby, a two-year-old male neutered, domestic short hair 
uh, feline, and he presented for ADR, which is what we call Ain't Doing Right. <laughs> Ain't Doing Right. Got it. ADR. His family was a dad, um, a young-looking dad, probably in his 30s, maybe um, early 40s, but his primary owner was a teenager. And this cat was kind of like an emotional support animal for this young girl. And so when he presented, they said, and I also looked in the notes of of his chart, that he was flagged for potentially being aggressive. And when I saw him, he was not aggressive, which was a red flag for me. Because, you know, you and I both know that if a pet is normally one way behavior-wise, that they're the complete opposite, normally that is a huge sign that something is seriously not right. And that was the case for him. Wow. Okay. Totally makes total sense. If I've got a cat who's kind of has a dynamic personality and just full of vigor, then uh, when they come in and the vigor is not there, then it makes you worry. Now, obviously, no one likes to be hissed at. Nobody likes to be scratched or attacked. But at least that would be a sign of health. And that's not what you're seeing there. So you see Toby come in. He's obviously not doing well. You're concerned about him. And what was the family saying at this time? What was their what was their feeling generally about Toby? Okay, well, they were saying that he hadn't vomited, that uh, he hadn't been uh, defecating, that uh, he wasn't eating, which was definitely not like him that he seemed to have less energy. They were very strong in saying he had he was not vomiting, he was not vomiting. Um, they said that everything else other than him not eating and having lower energy, what was going on, and that it had had it was going on for about two to three days that they noticed. At two to three days before they actually noticed that something something's kind of off here. Now, that's what the family was thinking. But as they're talking and giving you this history and these details, what's going through your mind? Um, well, as they're talking, I try to use that time, especially because, you know, in the clinic, uh, especially when you're in a general practice setting, you can have a full schedule. So you're trying to multitask as much as possible. Um, Because at the end of the day, even though you would love to spend plenty of time, as much time as you want per appointment, you logistically can't because you have other rooms already waiting for you. You have rooms that are um, or clients that are waiting to talk to you so that they can pick up their pet, you know, or people are on hold call and, and all that. You could even have an emergency that you have to run to the back to check on, you know, during appointments like this. So. While they were talking, I used this time to typically observe the pet. When, even though the texts, or which are the equivalent of the vet texts and the vet assistants, are veterinary equivalent of nurses. So even though they take histories and things like that, I always go in asking for history again because. Sometimes it causes them to remember a certain detail that they didn't say before, even if it's five minutes before. And so as they're doing that, I use that time to multitask and observe. So I'm observing the pet. I'm observing 
the hair code. I'm exer- I'm observing the behavior. I'm observing whether or not I'm seeing any obvious neurologic issues. Uh, if I can see that the skin looks weird, if the eyes are a weird color, like yellow or red, if they're dilated, if the pupils are dilated, what posture is the pet in? Will the pet walk around if I, you know, kind of move them a little bit? Uh, or no matter what I do and just repositioning their kennel, they just refuse to switch positions or refuse to even move from one side of the kennel, one side of the blanket to the other. Those are all things that help me to determine, to just start the physical exam process and also even start getting a sense of um, the level of pain and uncomfortability that a patient might be in. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like uh, you're doing obviously two things at once. We know history and physical exam are vitally important in proceeding and moving along and trying to get Toby some therapy. And what's really artful, you did an excellent job sort of articulating the nature and the actual day-to-day struggles of a veterinarian being pulled in multiple directions. And you are sort of obligated or forced to do both things at the same time, gather a history, listen, attentively, but also judge for Toby's behavior. So as you're doing this physical exam, you noticed him to be lethargic. Did you notice anything else strange about him? I noticed that he seemed to um, prefer being in a very uh, hunched, position. So he wanted to have all his paws tucked up under him. He wanted to have his body as curled up as small as possible in a ball. And yes, you can see that in some cats. You have a lot of cats, unless they're very stressed. And he didn't necessarily seem like he was stressed. He seemed like he just wanted to be in that position because he it was more comfortable for him. And whenever I see something like that, especially if it creates almost like a hunched back position of the spine of the abdomen, it makes me think whether or not he's guarding his abdomen, maybe he's painful there. And he's just, it's almost like if you have a stomach ache as humans, and instead of laying straight on the couch, you curl up in a ball. Yeah, no doubt. I've had plenty of stomach ache issues. And one of these days, you and I will talk about the time I needed emergency surgery. That was definitely a, an experience. I, yeah, I did. And I'll, I'll tell you that story and I'll spare you the details because they can get pretty they can get pretty specific. But at one point, and in fact, in several points prior to going to the hospital, I was actually on all fours, just laying there, just trying to protect my stomach. So I get that feeling 100% when I see pets in that position guarding their stomach. It's like the pain just radiates everywhere. So clearly, there's a lot of signs Toby is giving us that he has abdominal pain. What did you do next? So the next thing is um, after I finished getting the history and like I said, I'm multitasking. So uh, especially if I'm seeing something and I'm having to zone in on it, Um, I may miss something that the owners say. So I ask the question just to confirm, like, okay, is, did you just say this? And then they confirm it and I'm like, okay. Um, Just so that I make sure that I don't miss anything. So after that, I actually start my physical, the part of my physical exam where my hands are now on the pet. And I typically, unless there's an injury or something that's recommends otherwise, I start at the 
from, I start at the rooter, then I go to the tutor. So I start at the face and then I end at the tail. I'm and, so sorry for, for those in the back. They, it sounded like you might've said, I start from the ruta to the tuda. Uh, yeah. For those, for the uninitiated, what's the ruta and the tuda, Dr. Glass? <laughs> the root of- and where, what page can I find this on a medical uh, text? <laughs> that is called a colloquial term that is used a lot in the South. Okay. Okay. Especially and it means basically from head to tail. It means from head to tail. And I think Ruta okay. is from like the rooster where the rooster crows. Got I'm it. Okay. All crow right. from the, you know, their, their face, their mouth. So I start from that and then I go to the tail, which is the, you know, like your tootie, booty tootie. Yep. Tootie and booty. Yes. I totally yeah. understand. Right. Yeah. So I started the face. Uh, I check the eyes. I check to see if there are signs of dehydration, if there are signs of um, icterus um, or jaundice. So that would be a yellow color. I will show, um, look for signs of inflammation or stress or injury. Sometimes you can see that associated with red. And then I check the ears. Um, I also check the temperature of the ears too. And that's more of an integrative medicine approach because for conventional medicine, ear temperature isn't necessarily um, looked at. But um, I also look in the mouth. And so one of the things that I check in the mouth is once again, dehydration. Uh, I'm looking at um, teeth, if there's any obvious fractured teeth. Maybe that's why he's not eating because he has oral pain. Um, I'm checking to see if there's any foul smells coming from the mouth, um, any abnormal cell smells, because sometimes even kidney disease will uh, show up in a weird smell coming from the mouth. And that's the re- urea toxins. <laughs> Yes, urea toxins. We all know that smell, and it's pretty. It's pretty drastic because you're like, oh yeah. man, he's definitely not feeling well here. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, and I also look at the color of the gums. So whether they're red or pink, pale, white, blue, uh, which means that he's not getting enough oxygen, or yellow once again, which could suggest. Um, a liver, gallbladder issue, some type of blood issue. From there, I check lymph nodes. I start to check lymph nodes. I check around the face and then around the shoulders. I go to the back of the knees. I feel along the back, Um, especially, so what I, and I should pause to say that if I suspect that there is a certain part of the or certain region that is painful, I will normally save that region for the last of my exam. So even if it may normally be second or third in my journey from the from the face to the tail, for instance, with the abdomen, I made sure that it was that I skipped that and I did that at the very last. Because if it is painful, then I don't want the pet to be so distressed after assessing that area that I can't perform the rest of the exam. That totally makes sense. And I think that when you are doing a physical exam on cat, you realize uh, cats are not generally patient creatures. And so if they are not a fan of your physical exam, they will move quickly and you will not get a second opportunity, particularly if you go near something painful, 
they learn quickly, okay, stay away from this person. And so I completely endorse the idea of particularly in cats, waiting to the end of the exam to get to the most painful part. After you were able to do your physical exam, which by the way, I have to be honest with you, I love the way you described it because there are some people potentially who might say, well, my vet just kind of glided their hands over my kitty cat. But there's so many things that you're at that you are judging and learning as you seem like you're innocuously gliding your hands over the cat. There's so much information that you're actually gleaning at that time. So I love the way you describe that. After you finished that physical exam, what were the next diagnostics that you did? No, I didn't tell you what was um, abnormal about the exam. Please tell me. That's before the diagnostics. Okay, well, well let, please indulge <laughs> us. What did you find abnormal on your exam? Oh, every, everything else was pretty normal. Uh, well, I will say that as I was running my hand along the back, I did feel like he was a little on the skinny side. I felt like I could feel his spine, uh, his spinal bones a little too well. And I also felt like I could feel his ribs a little too well. So even though they were saying he hadn't been eating for a few days, it made me think, well, maybe he had been steadily decreasing the amount that he was eating and he just stopped eating for the last couple of days. Because especially in the chart, it looked like, you know, he was always described as being a good body weight. That was the first abnormality. The second abnormality, um, oh, and he was slightly dehydrated. But the biggest abnormality was the abdomen. So I felt his abdomen, he was definitely tense. He was still nice, which was still a red flag because he's supposed to be, He's historically he's been an angry cat. And I could feel something that was firm in his abdomen. He wasn't vocalizing when I would feel the area, but he was tensing up as I was feeling the area. And I said, okay, so there are these three things that are the behavior, the weight loss, and then the something mysterious in the abdomen. And from there, I made my diagnostic recommendations, which included uh, x-rays and included blood work. Got it. Got it. Okay. X-rays and blood work. Now you're starting to get a little bit deeper and trying to gain more information. What did you find on the x-rays and blood work? Anything interesting? Anything to unravel this mystery? Yeah. So with the blood work, sometimes the blood work can be very frustrating because you can feel horrible and everything on the blood work (laughs) looks fine. And so for him, that was essentially the case. There were slight abnormalities in his white blood cells, and they were mildly low on one in some of the um, white blood cells. They were mildly elevated in some of the others. But it wasn't anything that was just like, oh my gosh, this stuff looks crazy. And, you know, I know exactly what's going on, just based off of the blood work. Okay. All right. Nothing too crazy. And that's always challenging. Sometimes the absence of anything drastic on the blood work can actually help narrow down your the diagnostics. For example, as you were saying, sometimes even in cases of intestinal problems, you may not see changes on the blood work, which for me would be an indication we have an intestinal problem, right? Because I didn't see necessarily anything too crazy. When you took the radiographs, when you took the x-rays, what did you see there? So with the x-rays, I saw what looks like excessive spirals 
that's the biggest way to describe it. So we all know what, as veterinarians, we're trained to know the variations of normal when it comes to how the organs can look in x-rays. So we know that you're going to have your liver. We know, and between uh, if it's a Chihuahua or a Great Dane or a German Shepherd, a liver is going to always be in the same area and is going to have generally the same type of shape. So I saw the liver, I saw the stomach, uh, I could see the bladder, uh, I could see what looked like the kidneys. I could see that there was a little bit of the um, tail of the spleen. I could see um, some of the intestines, but the small intestines, which is just a lot of loop-de-loops in and of itself, all smushed together. Sometimes, depending on how sick an animal is, they can have a certain type of appearance, especially if they have fluid in the intestines, which suggests diarrhea, or there's just a lot of inflammation and around the intestines that may even be consistent with pancreatitis. But with this case, it was almost like there were extra intestines in there. And that's what I was like, ah, oh, this is different. <laughs> this is different. Extra intestines are a red flag. At what point did you realize, I think we have a major problem here. Oh, when I saw the extra intestines, I knew immediately. Um, it's like, you know, that's not normal. And so we're going to have to go the next step because it's also consistent with what I was feeling, right? Uh, you have to take what the results are from your diagnostic test and see in the results and see how do they support, how do they uh, corroborate what you were feeling in the physical exam. So if I was already feeling something abnormal and I'm also seeing something abnormal, then that means that, aha, there is in fact something abnormal going on and we need to do the next step in order to figure out what it is. For sure, for sure. What was that next step? So the next step was recommending surgery. And that's what I did. I recommended surgery to the family and Quite frankly, they were heartbroken. I mean, they this was already a low a low cost clinic that I was working at. So, I mean, while some clinics charge 60, 50, 70 dollars for an exam, this place charged 20 dollars for an exam. It would be everything including the pricing for the lab work and all that were already what's considered on the lower end of cost and the, they were still struggling to uh, to be able to afford the tests. So when I told them about what I believed was a foreign body, um, they were heartbroken because the dad did not think that he would be able to afford it. I did go over different options with him, like care credit. There are other options that are available. We used to have um, a place called, uh, well, we used to have a full service uh, hospital that essentially did low cost uh, advanced surgeries for people who applied and were deemed qualified for it. So I told him about that and he was making calls. He was trying to move some money around, but he had a feeling that he wouldn't be able to afford it. So I just kind of let them have that time to figure stuff out. And in the meantime, I'm still thinking about this cat and I'm thinking about how Toby, for the most part, looks like a good cat. Everything else about him was healthy. 
okay? He's overall healthy. Uh, and the, the family's heartbroken. And, and I couldn't agree with you more. There are families who are having difficulty planning for a human medical emergency. And now they have a, a veterinary emergency. But there is one thing in common. They're all part of the family. And so it can be extremely heartbreaking, regardless of the species, to have to indulge or engage in a significant medical health care expense. So I'm hoping that they were able to find the resources to go ahead and take Toby to surgery. And if so, what did you find in surgery? So unfortunately, they didn't. Um, What I did do, um, I asked them, I called the owner of the clinic. I was doing, excuse me, I was doing relief at the clinic. And um, so I called the owner of the clinic and I asked him if he would be okay with uh, if I offered surrender to the family because, you know, when it comes to euthanasia, uh, I just have the personal belief that especially for pets that are young, that have what's typically a pretty straightforward surgery, if everything else looks like it's going for them, like health-wise, then I really don't like performing the euthanasia. It'd be different if the blood work showed that, yes, there were liver issues if his temperature was like 97, 98, which is generally a poor prognostic indicator of how your body is going to handle a a surgical procedure um, afterwards, at least in my um, experience. Like those would have all been things saying, you know, he has a lot of stuff going on for him. It's a crapshoot whether or not he's going to pull through on the other end. So I'm okay with moving forward with euthanasia, but that wasn't the case. And so I offered with the owner's permission, I offered euthanasia. The owner of the clinic was willing to do the surgery himself and have the pet recover at the clinic. Um, and as they've done before, even with stray animals that they find, they essentially house them at the clinic until they find somebody who wants to adopt them. And so he was willing to take care of Toby until that happened. And so I discussed that with the owners. Uh, Because at the end of the day, we can't do anything without their permission. And they agreed. Um, And so they did surrender. Uh, They signed the paperwork to surrender the pet. Um, And I told them uh, that we were about to take them to a facility where he would get the surgery. And uh, they were sad, but uh, the dad knew that it was one or the other. Yeah, he's he's really faced with this sort of Hobson's choice of, of what do you do next? And and um, and the idea that this kitty cat will lose his life or potentially making a mistake and in, in, in eating something is is tremendously heartbreaking. So this, this family wasn't able to afford that particular surgery. And so they did ultimately relinquish him. And he ultimately did have surgery? Yes, he did. He did. Now, were you the one to do the surgery, Dr. Glass? No, I wasn't because I had like a huge amount of appointments that I had to get through the rest of the day. So what we did, um, I had one of the techs um, drive the pet over to a sister clinic where they do surgeries all the time. And so he was basically put first in line to do the surgery and uh, or to get the procedure done and he got it he got his foreign body removed the foreign body 
was a stack of ponytail holders. Oh my goodness, a stack of ponytail holders. Yeah. Fortunately oh, or unfortunately, I've never had to make use of a ponytail holder, but <laughs> they sound like a ponytail holder sounds like just an elastic ring. Yeah, so for all uh, as, uh, women who have, you know, longer hair would <laughs> would also know that when you're or relate to when you purchase these elastic bands basically for your hair you often get like 20 of them or 10 of them and they're usually attached all of them are usually attached by a plastic ring that holds them all in place so that plastic ring was also still in place. So I don't know how oh he did it, goodness. but he was, he ate the whole thing. It's like his, it's almost, it's remember the primary caretaker for the cat was the teenage daughter, right? And she does have long hair. Uh, it's as if she had just gotten these um, and I don't know why he would have eaten them. Maybe he was stressed out. Maybe he was mad. Maybe he liked the texture of it. I don't know. But it's like he ate one, but because they were all attached, he ended up just eating all of them. Because they're, you know, they're bands, they're um, elastic loops. Because of that, he ended up eating all of them. And that's what the extra intestines looking stuff was. Unbelievable. It just reminds me of like trying to eat just one spaghetti. And for some reason, you get a whole bunch and you just keep going and going until you get to the end. And, you know, if it's like fettuccine, that is unbelievable. He, he yeah. ate all of those rings and just because they were attached, they uh, he ate all of them. But it's it is it's pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive from start to finish to see Toby come in, see him lethargic. His back, his back is hunched, knowing that he's protecting his stomach. You do this very diligent physical exam. Listen to the history. Everything is pointing towards abdominal pain. You feel something foreign. You move towards x-rays, and there you see it what looks like extra intestine. You make that excellent call to take him to surgery, and lo and behold, they pull out ponytail holders. How did Toby do after the surgery? And what was the family thinking? Afterward, Toby did very well. He recovered well. The end of this story, um, especially when it comes to the family, is a lot different than what it typically is. Because the family ended up being able to raise the money that was needed for the surgery. So we gave him full disclosure. We told them where he was getting the surgery done and all that, and who was going to be the surgeon. They went to the place and they said, hey, can we adopt Toby back? We have the funds to pay for the, the procedure and, you know, his meds and all of that. And they were able to be reunited with Toby. And so far, I haven't heard anything else. So as far as I'm concerned, no news is good news. <laughs> no news is good news. That is a really touching end to this story where you have, as we talked about, so many families are faced with this really heartbreaking and heart-wrenching decision of, the affordability of right. medical care and having to make those tough decisions. And for some, the story does not end so well. It can be very tragic not having the, the requisite finances to move forward with surgery. But in this case, in Toby's case, the family was ultimately reunited. And boy, does that make me smile. That makes me so happy. 
Dr. Glass, man, that was, you took us on a roller coaster. You took us <laughs> and took me on an emo- emotional and medical uh, roller coaster. We are up against the wall in terms of time, but uh, I just want to thank you for sharing that story. That that was absolutely incredible. I would love to know, however, where people can hear more from you because anybody hearing you today has got to be a fan. Where can people find more about you? So you can go to my website. Um, you can go azizaglass.com forward slash links. Um, a uh, I have to do it phonetically. <laughs> uh, a Z as in zebra, I Z and zebra, A, and then G L A S S dot com forward slash links. And from there, you'll be able to see stuff. You'll you'll have the links to the, my different social media uh, platforms, as well as direct links to the stuff that I'm doing now. And the latest thing that I'm doing is that I am on Roman to the Rescue, which is on Disney XD and Hulu right now. And so we're, we just did our mid-season premiere and um, it's doing very well on Hulu. So it's for everybody, even though it says it's a Disney show, it is for everybody. I have seeing grown men get teary-eyed because of these touching stories with these kids and these uh, shelter dogs that are getting adopted. So even if you don't have any animals, you're going to love the show. Unbelievable. We didn't even get a chance to talk about the fact that you are not only social, but also a regular media star on Hulu. And this is incredible. Roman to the rescue, everyone. Please check out that show. Uh, You know, scintillating, scintillating drama is happening, but it's also happening in the name of pets. And that is something that really is heartwarming. So uh, listen, this is, when I said to you, we've got a treat, I meant it. Uh, Dr. Glass, thank you so much for joining us today. If we do a round two, would you uh, consider it? Yeah, I just got to make sure I have a crazy case. (laughs) Yes, yes. There's no doubt with you practicing, there will be a crazy case. Thank you again, and we'll talk again soon. All right, thank you for having me. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Fridelio Cat Lodaloner protects your cat from ticks and fleas, so you can be close. Fridelio Close, the first and only of its kind. It's a small, tasty chewable that's easy to give. Lodaloner is a member of the isoxazoline class of drugs. The most common side effects are weight loss, rapid breathing, and vomiting. This drug class has been associated with neurological adverse reactions. Use with caution on cats with a history of seizures. Keep your cat close. Fridelio Close. All right, there you have it, folks. That was Dr. Glass talking about one of the really mysterious cases of Toby, a kitty cat who comes in with just not doing well. And ultimately, through uh, diligent physical exam history and and diagnostics, she's able to uncover the fact that Toby ate a bunch of ponytail holders. So uh, we know that just less words to the wise, if you've got a kitty cat, you've got to sort of kitty-proof your home and anything that's string, elastic, or seems interesting to a kitty cat, you've got to pick it up. Otherwise, he may end up in Toby's situation. But you know what? One thing that was really heartwarming that Dr. Glass said is that Toby was ultimately reunited with the family. And that is something that can 
energize everybody for the week ahead. So wonderful, wonderful words of wisdom by Dr. Glass. Also, she's a media star. That's incredible too. Check out Roman to the Rescue. And after you check out Roman to the Rescue, stay tuned to this podcast for more episodes. Remember, there is nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. So please take care of your pets and each other. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.